my friends. Welcome to Radical Civility. My name is Ben Piccini. Uh, today, I'm, I'm, I want to start with a, a, a quote that I, I really quite love. Um, it's a, a poem. Uh, I had originally thought that it was by George Eliot, um, but uh, here it is. It says, um, apparently there's some controversy over who, who wrote it. I'm going to read it real quick for you. Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all out, just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and with the breath of kindness blow the rest away. Uh, yesterday was a pretty fun day for me. Uh, I woke up early in the morning and I, I got a group of friends together. I said, hey, there's this thing that's causing a lot of uh, angst and frustration. Let's talk about it. And the way that I kind of prioritize in my head for this podcast is, um, well, first of all, some of you have noticed that it's, it's two months before podcast right now. I've got a busy life. I'm getting my doctorate. I'm, I'm doing some other things. But in the last few weeks, I've really felt like I have, I have an obligation to do what I can to put good into the universe. I don't know if it, this is always good, but I, I certainly am trying hard. So here is what, uh, what, what I thought about. I'm a math teacher, so of course I had to go to the Cartesian coordinate plane, right? The XY gr graph that you hated in seventh grade. And on one axis, I plotted things that are really, really causing a lot of angst. And on the Y axis, I, I plotted um, things that people will change their minds on. And what you find when you get a, a positive score on both of those is um, things that just need some more explanation. And like, I can get things that people are really angry about, but they're not going to change on, right? That's politics. That's abortion. That's like really, really complicated, difficult stuff like that. And by the way, this stuff is difficult too. Um, but I feel like there, there's a whole wealth of, of different categories that we could talk about here where people will be better off by simply hearing another perspective. Um, and so that's my goal today is to, is to provide a perspective on, on something that was written recently that caused a lot of angst. Um, in that same category is critical race theory, which I feel like everyone is talking about and few are discussing well. <laughs> like I don't know anyone who, um, there, there's a group of people on one side who are like, I hate it. And, I, and I'm like, yeah, but I, I'm not convinced you know what it is. And the other group is like, yeah, they don't know what it is. I'm like, some of them do and they have real concerns and they're just not talking. So that to me is a really meaningful uh, thing that, I, that I'd, I'd like to get to here in a couple of weeks. Um, today's is another example. So I, I read an article about a week ago um, uh, the church that I belong to, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, owns uh, the Deseret News, which has a subsidiary called the Church News, and it focuses on um, things regarding the church, you know, announcements about policy, that kind of stuff. Um, and about a week ago, they, they published a short little essay by somebody named Tad Collister. He's Elder Collister, if you're in the church, because that's his title. Um, and he's an emeritus, uh, what's called a general authority. He was, uh, he's very well respected and um, he didn't pull any punches. His talk was on, or I guess his remarks, his essay, was on the importance of families in, in society and how strong families cure social ills. Um, now, I want to say at the get-go that this caused a fair amount of frustration, and there were a lot of people who um, really didn't like what he had to say. Uh, I'll, I'll say this when we get into the podcast, but I, I want to emphasize here, um, I might have edited some things that he said um, to make the message clearer. But his core message is one that I think needs to be said again and again. Um, and it's one that I believe in really, really deeply. Um, in fact, if anything, I wish that there was more generosity of spirit so that people would say, you know, there's some things I disagree with. There are some things I wish he had said differently. 
Um, but the court, there, there are some good things I can take away. I'm actually in a different position where I'm going to say I actually really believe um, like profoundly a lot of what he says. And I, 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 I think there are some people who would have been irritated no matter how, he, how much he would have edited. Um, having said that, I want to be really clear. The purpose of, of doing this podcast was um, me and some friends, I put out a call to my friends and I said, hey, let's talk about this thing. Um, and it was funny because they, the, the people who all showed up, we all ended up being dads and we're all sitting there trying to wrestle with our kids and, you know, keep them out of our recording rooms. And, um, some people had to go early cause they had kids and some people had the cameras off and it was, it was kind of funny. And it turned into a discussion about what does it mean? Like what, what does it mean to, to pursue a really, really strong family? Um, and we had a really good conversation about dads. Um, so. Having said all of that, the purpose of today is not a counterpunch. So if you've been on Twitter and you've heard or seen some of the discussion of this stuff, um, it got pretty intense and pretty frustrated and there was a lot of angst. And angst is not meant to minimize um, what's going on. Sometimes we, 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 we use that word in a minimizing way and I don't mean it that way. I, we, we start the podcast talking about how um, people's frustrations may well be real and that's okay. Um, our goal was not to react and defend this church leader. And our goal also wasn't to um, attack him for everything that he said. Our goal was to say, hey, here's a group of people that trust each other, that like each other and respect each other. And why don't, why don't the four or five of us just sit and talk about like, hey, what did you get from this? What did you take away in the spirit of intellectual generosity? And we do talk about some edits we might have made and some things that we could have clarified that could have made the message that much stronger. But at the end of the day, the core message is one that we all actually really agree on. So a couple of quick notes on this. I hope that if you're coming into this conversation and you know who Elder Collister is and the remarks that he gave, that you know that uh, it is not my intention to uh, throw a punch or to start a fight or to start an argument. And if this is something that has you worked up, I'm going to be fine if you decide to skip over it. On the other hand, if you decide that you want to listen, I hope you understand that you know, we tried the best we could to be generous and thoughtful. And I'm still sure that there was a lot of stuff that I didn't get right. Um, I was actually, during the podcast, I kept thinking, ooh, I, I need to go back and fix that so that people don't misinterpret. Then I realized at a certain point, I just have to trust people. Um, I, I could have said some things better. I could have tweaked some stuff. I don't think there's anything in there that's awful, but I think part of the problem right now is that people are both hurting and distrustful. And so because of that, I try to be as clear as I can. Um, so I would ask that you give a little bit of grace and generosity to all of us who are trying to work our way through this as best we can. Second, the, sound, the, the video quality is Zoom quality. That's my fault. I know better than to record on Zoom, and I still did it, so apologies for that. Uh, it is a little longer than normal, so I want to warn you of that too. This might be one that you want to listen to in chunks. Um, but aside from that, I think that some good might come of this because there's, there, because there's been so much angst and frustration. This is a good one to talk about because there's a lot that I think people can agree on no matter where they find themselves, politically or socially or, or in other places. Um, let me actually really quickly, one thing that I've been trying to do is do a little bit more um, of shouting out the good that I see in the world. And this is a really simple one. So before we start, I just want to shout out a couple of my friends. Here they are. This is Christine and John. I was, because of, of course I was, because it's me. Uh, we were having a debate on my wall about capitalism and classical liberalism. And uh, Christine said, John, I beg to differ. And by the way, Christine was my ninth grade English teacher. And uh, that is her being very polite and very direct and saying, I want to disagree with you. You are wrong about this. Let's have this debate. And John, equally as, as gracious, but equally direct. Cool. Say more. The two of them are arguing and they are arguing deliberately and very directly. And they are being kind and they are leaning into the disagreement to learn as much as they can from each other. Um, that to me is actually really cool. And so... 
Um, that's one that I learned from, and I'm, I'm grateful to my friends, and I wanted to shout that out. Um, I'm sure that there are other caveats that I could give. I'm going to shut up because I'm already talking for eight minutes, and it's, a, it's over an hour of a podcast. Let me just end with this note that I say all the time. Nothing would make me happier than to realize that I was wrong and to correct myself in the future. I always end this thing with a, 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 a little sentence about you know, myself in the future when I'm older and wiser. I really mean it. Okay? That goes for my friends too. We're not representing the church. We're not representing any institution. We're not representing our employers. This is just us. At the same time, the purpose of dialogue is to become better and to learn and to grow. And I think that's important. Um, so if you have thoughts or ideas, then let us know. Um, I, I think that there are lots of different ways that you can do that. With that, I'm going to shut up. Uh, this is called uh, The Dad Brigade Discusses Family and Tad Col Elder Collister. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you so much for, for being here on a, on a Saturday morning. Um, I'm a weirdo, so I dressed up in a bow tie uh, <laughs> because that's not my thing. Um, but I I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, so I, I asked a, a group of my friends to kind of talk about this. And the, and the primary reason I, I want to start by framing this really carefully. If you read, so the, the discussion for today is on Elder Collister's uh, church news piece. Um, and I'm guessing that there are, uh, based on Twitter, I know that there's a group of people that are pretty upset about some things that he said. If you're one of those who is upset, I want to be really clear from the outset that the goal here is not to push back or to start a fight or to argue. The goal is to provide a different view because a lot of my friends who are centrist or thoughtful or nuanced or whatever you want to call it, who are saying like, actually, I feel like there was a lot of good in that talk. Those are the same friends who are being quiet and thoughtful and moderate, and they are not putting their voices loudly out there on Twitter. They're not trying to start fights. Um, and so I, I want to be really clear. It's okay if we disagree on this stuff, but the goal here is not to punch back. The goal is to say, here's what I got from this. This was my genuine experience. Um, and here we have a, a bunch of dads talking about family. And I feel like that's a, that's a good, you know, framing for what we're trying to accomplish today. Um, I do think, so we're going to kind of do this in two parts. The first part is going to be, what did you take away from Elder Collister's remarks? And then the second part will be what's going on with the conversation about it and how can we actually try and make the conversation work a little bit better? Um, so Daniel, you, you said something a minute ago that I thought was pretty potent. Do you want to start, start us off with that? Sure. I, I was uh, mentioning Elder Callister has this metaphor of fences at the top of a hill and ambulances at the bottom of a hill. And a lot of the conversation I've seen um, seems to assume that Elder Callister is saying, we, we just need to remove the ambulances. We don't need safety nets. We don't need help for anyone who falls down. And I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that there's a little bit of an assumption when you, re you read that, you can read that into what he says. But what he's saying is we need to build the fence. We need to protect uh, protect uh, society from harms that are going to come to it. Um, that doesn't mean that when people are fall into danger, when people are victims, when people are suffering, we don't help them out. Um, we, we need that. We need to help. Um, and I think that the church does that. Society does that as a whole. But we, we need, need ambulances and we will need them as long as there are uh, holes and fences and people falling through them. We're going to need, need help for people. That, that's not the message he's saying that we just need to not let anyone, not help anyone and let them, let them suffer. That's spot on. There's, there's something I'm going to talk about at the end, which is deliberate offense taking. And I just want to emphasize right now, there are people who listen to this talk and, or, or, or saw this talk and um, were frustrated or angry. I want to be really clear that that's okay. And that's not, like, we're going to talk about that a little bit at the end. I also think that there were some people who were trying to 
cause problems and stir up trouble and kind of deliberately misunderstand. And I think those two are really hard to suss out who is who. Like, well, and, and could I jump in here yeah, please. Uh, and, and just say, I was reminded of something to maybe separate those, uh, you know, those maybe manufactured outrage, which we have some versus maybe some legitimate uh, pain that's coming up here. On the latter point, uh, you know, I, I've sometimes worked with a client. I'm a, a marriage and family therapist part-time. And I, I've worked with people that have uh, PTSD. You know, they've undergone a traumatic experience. And one of the interesting things about that is, um, we'll just take an example. This, this example isn't one of my clients, but, uh, you know, uh, let's say a mom has been, uh, uh, you know, her, her husband's been deployed overseas in the military and she doesn't get out a lot. And she's got a friend that's saying, Hey, come, come to dinner with me. Oh, I'm busy. I've got all these kids I'm handling. We'll bring your kids. She brings her kids, drunk driver hits her minivan, kills everybody in the car, all her kids in the car, except her. So this is of course a terribly traumatic experience. And what happens in PTSD is you ruminate on that decision. And so she says, uh, oh, if only I'd have postponed that, or why did I have to go? I didn't need to go. I didn't need to do. And what the work and what that ends up doing, that rumination is perpetuating the trauma. You, you're, you're, you're re-traumatizing yourself every time you go into that, oh, why didn't I do, right? Whereas, of course, any of us sitting outside that can say, you didn't choose to have those horrible things happen. You were going to dinner with a friend. There's nothing wrong with that. And so some of the work in, in therapy and in dealing with that is to say, you didn't choose this consequence, right? And, and maybe, and there's nothing you could have done to prevent that. And so I wonder if, if some of these people that are reacting strongly are, are having this re-traumatizing moment. Maybe they are a single mom or maybe they are some of these things. And, and, and maybe some of those choices uh, they wouldn't make a second time, right? And, and so sometimes when, when we have those reactions, if we can look inside and say, okay, what do I need healing for? And what do I need, need that for? And we still, we still need the ambulance. Uh, and again, this isn't meant to criticize Elder Callister, but, but I think this might be some of the more legitimate reasons people could be in pain. And if we're talking to those people, being sensitive to this idea might help us as we minister to them and, and help them still get the truths from this without re-traumatizing, from this truths from this talk without re-traumatizing themselves. I think that's a, that's a fabulous point. And I'll, I'll just add to it. I think what I heard in what you said was a lot of the people who are having strong reactions, it's because they have valid, legitimate trauma and that's okay. And like, you're good. Like we're not, and my addition, my only addition to that would be, I think there are also two things that we are going to explicitly avoid because they're wrong. And that is blame, right? Blame in the sense that I have absolutely seen people blamed for bad circumstances that they that that they've gone through when i cannot honestly find anything that they could have done now i'm not their judge i'm not god i don't know their side of the story right or the other side of the story but you know 
I certainly don't think that because somebody's been through divorce that that means that they are a horrible person. I think that's really ugly, and I absolutely see that sometimes come up. To Jeff's point, I also think that sometimes even if no one is saying those blamey things, you still feel it, right? There's an internal feeling of blame. And so I, I just want to really emphasize, if you've been through some stuff, like I don't think that Elder Collister is saying, oh, you like... I can, let me see if I can say it this way. I can see why somebody would read this article and go, I'm, I'm the cause of all of America's problems is what he's saying. Like I, I'm the real you know, problem here. I just want to emphasize, I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Um, I think he's rooting for somebody who's been through difficult stuff as we'll talk about in a minute. Um, why don't I share my screen just for a second? And I want to show the actual, um, let me, um, do this. I want to show the actual article so that we can look at it really quick. So it looks like this. It says, Elder Tadar Collister, a fence at the top or an ambulance at the bottom. Do one of you just want to kind of summarize what was this article about? What did it say? I don't want to reread the whole thing, but what were the, the key points here? Well, can we start at the very beginning where it says living faith? Uh, this is part of the series in the church news about practical uh, application of the gospel. And, and I think that's, that's maybe important context too. Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. So he starts out by giving this example of a fence at the top or an ambulance at the bottom, which is funny because it's now become controversial. I actually heard that a lot when I was in education, right? If you've got 25 students in your class, do you want to increase the number of ambulances at the bottom or do you want to put up a fence at the top? And as it turns out, there's a lot of research on this in education. When a student gets into tier three of RTI, it can be really challenging to get them back up. The best thing that we have found is really high quality tier one instruction, right? Like this is not very controversial in that regard. That doesn't mean that we're not still gonna pour services into kids who are really struggling. What it means is what can we do to be preventative as well as um, reparative after the fact? And I think that brings up a really good point with, with education as, as, as an example. So like the state of Utah and Idaho, I think, spend near the bottom in terms of kind of per pupil spending from the state governments and from local governments and from the federal government. And yet their educational outcomes really aren't, they're middle of the pack, sometimes pretty high relative to other states in, in, in the country, in part because the complementarities between the inputs that you get at somebody's home, right? If you have both parents in particular that are able to invest the time, the money resources, the income resources into the family complements this the inputs that society puts in, right? And so it makes all of our public resources, like what we spend on education, much more efficient. And I mean, that's probably coming from my economist background a little bit too much, but I think it's a really good example to say whatever inputs you put in socially are going to be magnified in the good that they can do when you have these uh, guardrails in place kind of at the top, right? And back to your, uh, back to your point, like it, it takes a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of resources to help people rebuild their lives. And so one question for, I guess, policymakers, which is where kind of my professional life comes in, is where do you invest the resources to make sure that we are doing things efficiently and doing the most good? And I think that's a really important kind of side angle to this that Elder Collister is getting at is if we want to make society in a better place, you start with the fundamental units. And he's making this core argument that family still is the fundamental unit. And then that's recognized across the world as a basic thing, a basic idea we need to get back to, to be able to prosper. And, and it has uh it has broader effects than just the unit. I don't know if you saw, you probably did, Sam, 
the uh, research um, that came out recently that talked about how the number of, of course, and we're all biased, we're all fathers here, uh, but I think fathers are a really valuable uh, investment here. But there was some research that said the number of fathers in a given community uh, affects the outcomes of families even that don't have their own father. The presence of a lot of fathers in a community will cushion, insulate, compensate for an individual issue. But when we talk about norms uh, and those sort of things, how important it is, even if there, there are going to be exceptions to the norm and, and we wanna be sensitive to those, we also wanna to try to promote those norms that we know, and this is gospel truth, this is public policy truth, I think. We wanna promote those norms that are known to improve outcomes. Can I and, uh, comment on that? Um, you know, it, it's important with Elder Callister's remarks and uh, to note that he's thinking about systems, about um, the long-term impact of policy, not about individual individuals or families. And so he's talking about averages. On, you know, on average, there are significant benefits to in individuals being raised by uh, in a two-parent household, uh, for instance. That doesn't mean that there aren't uh, incredible uh, single mothers that or fathers that raise children that, that end up just as well as those that are raised in a two-family household. That doesn't mean that uh, LGBT couples are not valid, that they're not good parents, that they don't raise their children uh, to be good people. That, that's not true at all. This is a question of, at a systemic level, what produces the best outcomes for society uh, and that that isn't, should not be taken as denigrating or putting down those that are not in that um, I, kind of ideal because they, they are even you know in some ways they should be praised for doing going above and beyond for doing more for succeeding when it was more difficult or more challenging for them for the for their their circumstance so it's it's not I don't think it's meant to be a put down at all I think it's the opposite. Jacob, you had something to say, and then I'll chip some stuff in. I I just want to appreciate where Jeff and Dan started us, saying kind of soft things. <laughs> that could have been added to the article to make it stronger, like acknowledging that, but of course, how Boyd calls these, but of course statements, <laughs> no, but of course, um, this isn't to say that there isn't a need for ambulance. And, and, but of course, there is real trauma people go through. Um, sorry, I'm gonna have to come back to this <laughs> statement. You don't need to apologize, that's fantastic. Speaking of trauma. Right. <laughs> Actually, so, so I love if, the, if, I, I could, go ahead, go if ahead. I if I could just continue that, you could edit that out. Um, <laughs> as an editor, I think that could have strengthened the article. And so I don't think Sarah is wrong to say, oh, we could have done better. I also think that there was a, a, a one, there's one line I would have suggested he take out a little zinger, that little glitter, glamour wrapped in a rainbow. Mm. You know, like not necessary to the shoot. You're fine. I can I can hear you, and I'm probably not going to edit it out because the 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 little baby sounds are adorable. So keep going. So what I'm pointing out is, I think as an editor, she's fi she's fine to say, yeah, we, we could have done some more editing and improved. I I get that all the time as an editor, and I I just sent out a similar email last night to somebody. Um, the the hard thing though is. The hard message is he is raising a strong critique and Sam's getting at this nicely, a critique of the core problem definition in America today. 
I have friends who genuinely believe racism is the problem. It's the core issue. And until we address that core, nothing else is going to change. Others say the same thing about climate change or you know, inequality. So even with all the soft additions to the article, people would still be challenged <laughs> by, by a strong critique who is making and that you don't often hear anymore of this core problem definition that says, you know, race is the biggest problem. We got to address race or nothing else is going to change. And he says, actually, no, here's another view of the problem. And I think that's at the core of why people were concerned. I don't think it was the little, little glitter glamorous um, line or the absence of those other acknowledgements, which could have helped. I think the core critique he's making is a hard one for people to hear in our society where they've embraced other views of the problem. I think fundamental. So let me read the first paragraph, which I think exactly gets to your point. It says, if you were asked what is the greatest challenge facing our nation today, how would you respond? The economy, national security, immigration, gun control, poverty, racism, crime, pandemics, climate change. While each of these is a valid concern, note that he says that it is a valid concern and deserves attention, I do not believe that any of them strikes at the heart of our greatest challenge, a return to family and moral values. To put our prime focus on other challenges is to strike at the leaves, not the root of the problem. It is, as some have noted, to put an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff rather than a fence at the top. Now, I hear a lot of what you're saying, Jacob, in that, in that paragraph. Now, I want to, to go to two points really quickly. I'm so, sorry that I'm going to talk for a second here. Um, first, uh, to Elder Maxwell. And my goal here is not to, to beat people over the head. My goal is, however, to suggest that this is not new, what he is saying. So let's listen to Elder Maxwell here first. Do not let yourself reflect too much on the social, political, and economic indicators that suggest the gathering storm lest you realize that there is an inseparable connection between the keeping of the commandments and the well-being of society. Elder Maxwell was really big on this point, and the point is very simple. If you want to solve societal ills, the only real way to do it is by individual commitment to the commandments of God. Right Now, that's a religious teaching. I think it's borne out by the research, but maybe that's my bias. That's fine. But what I am trying to say is that's not a new argument. And in fact, I think that's very, that's written all over the Book of Mormon, the, the, the scriptures that we hold to. The other one that I really like, let's, let's do the second one really quick. This is also by Elder Maxwell, same talk actually. Reflect on the practicality of gospel standards either. Standards such as abstaining from alcohol. For if you do, a surf of statistics will wash over you, confirming that abstinence is ultimately the only cure for alcoholism that is both preventive and redemptive. You will also see that the living of one protective principle of the gospel is better than a thousand compensatory governmental programs, which programs are so often like straightening deck chairs on the Titanic. Do not think too much either. I love that one because he gets interrupted by the laughter as it dawns on them what he's just said. Right. And it takes a couple of seconds for people to realize what he's saying and how genius that statement is. Jeff, go ahead. Well, it's a simple it's a classic Maxwell where uh, it takes you it takes most of his audience a little while to track what he's saying, <laughs> uh, even as I love him. That's why I was smiling. But uh, and I miss Elder Maxwell deeply. Um, but um, I think it's it's 
the it's a fundamentally what has struck me uh, listening to Elder Maxwell was also how prophetic this is. You talked about how it's the Book of Mormon, and we but we can also mention the New Testament, right? This this is the prophetic theme, right? Come back to the covenant, return, uh, change your mend your ways. That that is a prophetic message. Uh, and it is a proper role for a religious leader. Uh, now, Elder Callister is not an apostle, but he's sustained as a 70, and he, he has something like that prophetic role. And here he's, he's acting in that function. And I take Jacob's point uh, well, but I would also say, uh, you know, maybe uh, glittery and or glamorous was gratuitous, but the point of how our popular culture uh, and how the adversary can wrap things up, sometimes nothing, right? An empty package uh, and make it look so appealing, so good. How many of us have seen a hyped, you know, uh, advertising for movies, you know, and then you go to the movie and you go, well, gosh, all the good moments were in the trailer. You know, uh, that's a that's a valid point uh, Elder Callister's making there. I want to acknowledge, Jeff, um, I agree. Like, it's a strong point. All, all I was pointing out is that Sarah's um, email that is being attacked by people is recanting on the doctrine. is an email that editors send all the time. And like, I think the how- Can I be helpful maybe to say what, what this email from Sarah Weaver is for anyone who doesn't, doesn't have the context? Yeah, yeah. The, to just to say the how of how we say things can always be improved. I think she was acknowledging that. I don't think she was recanting on the message. It's a powerful, wonderful message. The only other thing I would add, and I'm probably going to need to go, unfortunately, is that exactly what Jeff said. That solution that is the prophetic solution follows from a true problem definition. And if you start with the wrong problem definition, you know, you do end up nipping at the branches and doing all sorts of things and spending all sorts of money on something that's not going to get at the core problem. So from the Latter-day Saint perspective, of course, Elder Callister is sharing a loving message. He's sort of like saying, oh, please, let's, let's start seeing this clearly so we can do the things that get at the roots of the problem. That, you know, that is what we would say. But of course, if, if you're enamored by a problem definition that's wrong, you're going to feel it as a threat. I think that's the core threat here. It's not because of the glamour glitter line or the lack of other acknowledgements. It's a threat that is just his honest critique is a threat. And, and I've started to feel like um, you can either be a missionary or not offend people. Just sharing the gospel message plainly is increasingly going to be very threatening to people. It just is. Even with all of the right qualifications, even with the perfect editing, <laughs> people are still going to hate it. So yeah. anyway, thanks I, for I having wanna, us on. Well, thank you, Jacob, for being another, here. Another talk uh, that I really like on this, this topic, by it's by Elder Christofferson. It's from 2009. It's a talk called Moral Discipline. And he, he made very similar points to Elder Callister's in that talk. Um, he talked about um, society, how you know, because we've had, you talk about relativism, how the fact that people have been taught the truth is relative, everyone decides for himself what is right, 
and there aren't strong families. He mentioned that because of that, um, you know, you need, it says the lack of internal control by individuals breeds external control by governments. Um, and he mentioned, he quoted uh, Walter Williams, an economist um, who wrote in the Desert News um, that about society that, you know, he mentioned policemen and laws can never replace customs, traditions, and moral values as a means for regulating human behavior. At best, the police and criminal justice system are the last desperate line of defense for our civilized society. Our increased reliance on laws to regulate behavior is a measure of how uncivilized we've become. And he talked also there about families as the foundational unit there. And so I think it's a really similar message. Um, and you know, Alec Hallister is a lawyer, um, and I think he's viewing it from that same perspective, um, that you have laws uh, and the justice system and all these systems in place because pe people are not living um, in a moral fashion. And that that stems from problems at the top, from the lack of, of, of strong families, from the lack of moral values being clearly taught in the world. And so I, I think it's a really similar message ultimately that's being taught in these uh, by, by, by Elder, Elder Christofferson and uh, Elder Maxwell and by Elder Callister as well. Sam, you had something and then I've got like five things I need to jump in on. Go ahead. <laughs> we were talking about packaging, right? Uh, like packaging of ideas or packaging of concepts and, and how kind of push back on some of those or even sharing that core gospel message is going to be challenging to some people. And pe when people feel challenged, they feel defensive. They feel often they resent being made to feel stupid, even if they figure out that their prior worldview or some aspect that they're considering was wrong, right? People tend to resent that. And I was, I, so I was thinking of this question because one of the paragraphs in here that really got people um, upset is, is talking about specific kind of policy choices or social phenomena that, we are considering right now or that we've been wrestling with for the last century, right? Um, how they are, there's like a PR package that comes with that. And the question that, that I started thinking about was the adversary has to be good at his job in some way. How could he possibly convince a third of the hosts of heaven doctrinally, right? A third of the hosts of heaven to abandon trust and faith in our heavenly father in his plan and in the savior right because that choice was fundamentally about who are you going to trust are you going to trust that heavenly father knows what he's doing and that the savior can and is capable of doing an atonement for this relatively high risk endeavor that we're going to to experience life on earth without knowing any of the prior things that we knew at one point in our pre-existent life how could lucifer convince those people to make the choice that they did. There had to have been some logical conclusion that they would come to based on his argument to make that choice, to give up their opportunity for eternal progression. I don't know what that argument could possibly have been, but there had to have been an argument there that was convincing enough for them. And so that makes me very wary of what arguments am I listening to? Am I thinking about that are pushing me towards that. No, not granted, not as dramatically, right? But the adversary has been doing this for a long time. And the tendency to be distant from God, to be distant from the nature of eternal beings and celestial existence, which is what we get in the core of the family proclamation is what is the nature of celestial families and God's existence and how do we get that? That's the core doctrine. What arguments could be put up to make people want to distance themselves from that? Because that, that kind of propensity to be distant from God doesn't come from God. 
God didn't create that propensity for evil. It's always existed. And so it got me, got me thinking about that core question about something has to be um, appealing about that. And I think that idea of packaging and PR and, and, and all that is, is falls under that, that conversation. I don't and know I, much about the adversary, but I'm pretty convinced that he's a sophist and a really, really good one. Right. Yeah. Um, I, th I think that's a spectacular point. So I think I mean, that the, sorry, go the, ahead. If I'm, if I'm cutting you off, I was thinking, all, all of the um, book of Mormon antichrists that are mentioned in the book of Mormon are all very, very good at, 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 at words. Uh, they're very, very uh, persuasive in their rhetoric. That's, uh, all of them. That's that's a characteristic of all of them. So I think that you're you're exactly right. Well, about and somebody that. somebody mentioned something earlier that's kind of striking to me. This is this is an article that talks very firmly about the family proclamation, but never mentions LGBTQ stuff. When I first heard about the dust up, I was sure that that was going to be at the core of it because that's currently controversial. Um, I, I sometimes talk with my students about education, and one of the things that I say is, um, I think you will see in the classroom what happens <clears throat> when society doesn't prioritize the family. And those last two paragraphs of the family proclamation are very direct about what happens to societies. I don't think that that actually is directed primarily at LGBTQ folks or- He does or, mention same-sex marriage in, in the, the paragraph, the, well, the, one, the, 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 the glitter time bomb, that, that paragraph, he does mention same-sex marriage in, in there. And that's, and that's fair, but I feel like, I feel like in my mind, let, let me put it a little bit differently. I feel like part of what he is saying is government's not going to be able to pick up the pieces of a society with broken families, right? And then, and, the, and he quotes Bill Barr, which I want to get to in a second, because that's its own whole thing. Um, but I think there's a fundamental issue here. And this is, this is kind of from my own experience. Um, I know most of my teacher friends are actually very liberal, right? In terms of American politics, they want bigger government, they want more social services, they want all of those things. I can't think of one of them who would say that the solution is schools, that the solution is going to be um, to just throw every societal ill on the backs of teachers like we've done for now a generation or two and say, oh, we have a problem with crime. Let's just give better schools. We have a problem with uh, teen pregnancy. Let's just give them better schools. I think teachers are actually buckling under the weight right now of societal ills that they don't have the, they don't have the power to solve. And by the way, I am a big proponent of how much good teachers can do. So I am not saying um, that teachers can't do anything. I, I, I'm actually kind of on the opposite extreme of you should assume you are the primary variable in that, in that child's academic life. Um, and you can do a lot of good. And I think there's evidence for that. But if we as a society are trying to fix family problems through teaching or education or social services, I think we've got it backwards. We're waiting until the problems are exacerbated and then trying to rush the Again, it's, it's fence or ambulance. Um, and I think that's really backwards. Do you think that's a shift then? Uh, because, uh, you know, I, you would often hear, uh, you know, educator, you know, it's the old joke uh, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, you know, just as an outside observer, looking at your field, I hear a lot of educators say we need more education. Are you, are they kind of raising the white flag now? Uh, uh, well, this is, we have, we have to define things in very careful terms. Um, and I don't, I don't want to make this about education. Right. I think most of the time, let me give you an example. Most of my education friends would vote in favor of universal pre-K, okay? Um, they think that that's a good thing. I don't think that, I, at the same time when we're sitting in the faculty lounge and we're talking about kids that we're struggling with, 
all of them will say, I don't know what I am supposed to do with that kid when they have such a hard background. And by the way, every one of us has kids who've had a hard background and they make it through and they're resilient. And I am not suggesting otherwise, right? Background is not destiny. And I would never suggest otherwise. But um, in fact, now's a good time for me to share this other um, article really quick. So um, this is by Matt Iglesias. He's not exactly your, your arch conservative social, um, social conservative guy. Um, family structure matters, but can we do anything about it? And he says it this way. Family structure matters. Murphy Brown is coming back on the air. And in the time since Dan Quayle lit into her, the evidence has become fairly overwhelming that kids raised in stable two-parent households do better than those raised by solo parents. Even more strikingly, a series of research projects led by Raj Chetty and his collaborators culminating in the Opportunity Atlas shows that this happens on a community level. So let's go to the community level issue. This is, this is I love Raj Chetty. I think he just does really interesting work. So um, the first thing that you can find, this is, this is kind of the first point that Iglesias makes. This is from Brookings. Again, not exactly your right wing uh, Heritage Foundation powerhouse. And this is just a very simple correlation of percent of single mother families in an area. And it's very clear that it's not super great with upper, upward mobility. I think this is the social science behind what's being said here. That and and we maybe want to define upward mobility. This is people coming out of poverty for the layman. That's right. That's yeah. right. Which I think is a big societal goal right now. Right. And so, and, and by the way, the, the numbers on this are really powerful among like the top 10 influences. This is like number two consistently, number one, two, and three, like it's really, really high. The fact that it's never discussed is in part because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to say something that sounds judgmental or offensive. And I think that that's not very, that's not a good idea. That's not fair. So let's hop over to this one. This one is really interesting. This is the one I'll just, I'll just quote the highlights here over on this side. Mobility for children who were raised in lower income families is higher for kids raised in neighborhoods with lots of two parent families and lower for kids raised in neighborhoods with more single parent families. Communities with more single parents are much more likely to have boys who end up being incarcerated as adults. The, the basic finding here is an individual child can be super resilient. If your parents go through divorce or you have a hard time or whatever else, like the individual child can bounce back from that because they have other supports in the neighborhood. They have grandfathers, they have uncles, they have you know, church leaders, they have other people who can step in and help whatever in whatever way they can. I'm not saying that it's fun or that it's always easy. And absolutely, some of that comes from the child doing everything that they can to be resilient. Like there's, there's, there's lots of evidence that that's what's going on. But when you have a full community where the family is broken, it's actually really, really hard. In other words, I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't get divorced. I, I think it's a much more complex problem than that. We should build strong marriages that don't necessitate divorce is the way that I would say it, right? But even setting that to the side, what I'm saying is that your neighbor's strong family has a positive impact on you. And your neighbor's struggling family and, and family with lots of challenges also has an impact on the rest of your family, or sorry, the rest of your community. That seems really obvious to me, but it's not something that we generally talk about. Again, because it sounds super arch conservative and there's, there's some political stuff in it and we don't wanna come off as judgmental, but I think it's really important that we preach kind of what we practice in this case. I want to mention one of something I, I really liked was uh, President Obama when he was uh, a newly elected pre uh, president. Well, in 2008, he gave a, a Father's Day uh, sermon uh, about fathers, and you know I think this is not doesn't need to be a political message. You know, he said something very very similar to what we're talking about that um, you know the family is the foundation of society. And he said of all the rocks upon which we build our lives, we are reminded today that family is the most important. And he talked about the the problem of single father, the lack of, uh, of, of single mothers, the lack of fathers in, in the house, in the, 
especially in the African-American community, um, and the need to change that uh, to build a foundation. I mentioned that it's the foundation of our country. That's what keeps the foundation of our country strong. And so I, th I think this doesn't have to be a political message. It doesn't have to be controversial. I think it, it, it's almost universally recognized um, that the, the family is the foundation of society. And when, when you don't have strong families, society suffers. That, that shouldn't be so such a political message, ultimately. And, and I think going back to like that, it doesn't have to be a political message, it, but it can be, right? So the proclamation, that those last paragraphs are warnings and, and a calling to action, a call to action for governments, local or national, right? Mm. And even thinking about this, a lot of the pushback on this has come from pe people who are more politically left of center, right? Um, in particular for quoting kind of right-wing thinkers or some controversial figures like Bill Barr, but I think on a fundamental level, this is also the family proclamation and Elder Collister's comments are a call to action about the types of things that we do in our local and national governments that might undermine family relationships. So you can think about the problems that we have with mass incarceration, be it over policing, over legal, like over or over legislating people's behavior, for example, for petty crimes low-level drug offenses, right? And the disproportionate impact that that ha has, has had on, say, Black families, right? Because when you have a parent- cigarettes. Right, exactly. Like, yeah, loose, selling loose cigarettes as like a, a crime that's worth even thinking about, right? Those have disproportionate impacts on very vulnerable families who might be on the margin of holding it together, right? And- and the fines, just the fines they have to pay, even if they're not incarcerated, those fines, someone on a, a poor budget, uh, and we know some, yeah, they'll use some of these laws to raise revenue rather than to try to promote social goods. Exactly. And so, you know, we have a lot of public policies and you could probably put this, I mean, some social scientists would probably put this under the label of systemic racism, but I think it, it's it's more specific than that, than that general term. But in terms of how we as a society undermine a lot of people's desires to have more stable family life, um, be it with the way we police, the way we legislate, the way that we in, uh, create tax incentives. So for example, like lower income people who are on the earned income tax credit, for example, face the highest implicit tax rates because for every dollar they earn, they lose like 50 or to 60% or between 30 and 60% of their benefits, right? That's a very high marginal tax rate to be paying. And when the, when the penalty is exacerbated by having a second earner in the home, that makes it hard to feel like you can have both a stable family life and the support from local government that you need to really be mobile, right? And so the, the kind of the political message can cut both ways. Um, and so I think that's something to be really thoughtful about as we're considering the implications of this call to action, because it, it really does, should give us pause from a variety of political perspectives too, and not right. just the kind of tribal rallying cry that, that a lot of people brought into this. Totally and agreed. I, okay. Go ahead, Jeff. Oh, and I think uh, to Sam, I wanted to pick up on what I thought was really trenchant point you made when you brought up the adversary and the war in heaven. Uh, and I think it ties to the theme of your podcast, Benjamin, radical civility because <clears throat> what what were some of the tools uh, Satan used uh, Lucifer used and I think uh, from scripture I think there's there's one from scripture and there's one from personal experience that I've I've experienced and observed 
uh, in day-to-day life. The one in, that you see in scripture is accuser, the accuser of our brethren, it says. And that spirit of accusation is, I, I'm going to just straight up say it, is demonic because it, it, it says you, you are doing, you know, and that, that accusation, that isn't, that isn't the way uh, Heavenly Father works. It isn't the way Jesus works. Even when Jesus can be very sharp and Jesus could be very, but he was clear. He was sharp because he was clear. The adversary's accuser, you are bad. You are doing this. And, uh, and sometimes we can feel accused because again, I think the adversary is working on us to teach us not to pray, to teach us not to come back. Uh, to these uh, saving truths. So sometimes a message may not be accusing, but we can feel accused. And I think it's it's the adversary working in our minds to undermine that message. Uh, and the other one uh, that I've, I've seen, uh, particularly in the political arguments uh, that cut against, you know, that, that why, why don't we have civility, Benjamin? Why do we need to talk about this more? And why is this podcast series needed? Uh, because resentment, resentment, you'll see this, you want, pick, pick a cable news channel, I don't care which side of the aisle, even when I agree with them, uh, what the point they're making, go, yeah, yeah, good point, you know, you can get in that tribe, sucked into that tribal, it is compelling, let's not deny it, it's really easy to get sucked into that, I've been sucked in, maybe you guys haven't, I know, you're better than me, but uh, the theme, when I sit back and say, what are they saying, there is this, uh, there's accusation. These people are stupid, they're ill will, they have bad motives. So there's that accusation in there. And then there's the resentment that comes into these. And that's the second one, resentment. There's people getting something you're not. There's people doing things that have privileges that you don't. You can hear Tucker Carlson say this and you can hear Rachel Maddow say this. Both of them have this, and I'll agree with both of them at times. But the, the resentment is not helpful and it doesn't, it, it is impossible to have civility when you think someone is getting something, some advantage that you're denied. Well, and I, so I, as I was thinking about what to podcast about, I, I kind of made a prioritization list in my head and I said, what is an issue that is, that is causing the most frustration that is easy to solve just by talking through the misunderstandings. And I feel like Elder Collister's article is one of them. There, there's still gonna be people who are upset and that's fine, okay? But at the same time, I feel like there's, it's just such fertile ground because there's actually a lot in here where I'm going, yeah, that actually makes sense. And people are not seeing eye to eye on this and they're not understanding. Um, we should well, probably- I think if you apply that lens of accusation and resentment to maybe some of the reactions that, that people are having here, uh, that, that again, may where we may help to smooth out this message and, and also look and say, uh, you know, a step back. And, and if you feel like he was saying, you know, somebody's better than you, or you feel like he's saying you're bad, uh, rather than a call uh, for, for improvement, you know. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And so I want to go back to Jacob's point about editing. Um, I feel like there are a couple of things I would have tweaked. I probably, the funny thing is, I think Bill Barr's statement is actually pretty, like it's very punchy, but there's not much that I disagree in about it, right? I think it, it is the case and it's a very, very, um, the, the reason I wouldn't have used him was because of his association with Donald Trump and all of the political stuff that's going on right now, but there are similar quotes 
by left-wing Democrats who have said for a very long time that family structure matters and that we're fooling ourselves if we think we can get away with this. I remember President Obama's fatherhood message. I thought it was wonderful, right? Quoting from that could have softened this essay and still had the same fundamental point. Now, again, to Jacob's point, I think you can soften all you want to if the fundamental core message is about... Um, is about standing for the family. There are gonna be people who are bothered by that. And that's that's just something that I think we kind of have to recognize. So maybe in the last few minutes, um, we can talk more about what you took from the talk, but I wanna talk about the conversation around the talk, right? Where did it go awry? What is going on? Why are people so angry? I want to, I want to not become the accusers here, um, <clears throat> but I also want to say like, this is the purpose of the podcast is to, is to critique the conversation and say, can we do better at this? Um, and my very simplistic reading of this is that there were some legitimate hurt, right? I guess is a better way to say it. There were some people who were genuinely hurt by some things that, that were said, I think because of misunderstanding. And there are also some people with an ax to grind and there are people who are angry and I can't tell which one's which, right? I can't tell somebody who reads this and goes, oh, that really hurts. And somebody goes, ah, that didn't hurt that bad, but I really don't like what they're teaching. So I'm going to, I'm going to misconstrue it as best I can. Um, I think there has been a lot of deliberate offense taking. I think there has been a lot of like, this is the worst thing ever. Can you believe that he said this? Instead of, uh, there's this quote that Elder Maxwell used to cite a lot. Um, it's a quote by, I'll, I'll look up the, the author in a minute, um, but it's, um, a, a friend is someone who can take, um, the, take the harvest and blow away the chaff and keep only the grains, basically. Um, and it's a really beautiful concept. And Elder Maxwell, at, at the beginning of multiple of his talks, he would say, my friends, I hope that I can trust you to blow away the chaff and keep the kernels, right? I feel like th there's such a lack of grace for the other person and, and generosity that it's almost the opposite. It's like, let's look for the chaff. Let's find all of that. Let's ignore the kernels. Let's do as much as we can to find every bad piece that we can. So what are your thoughts on how the conversation itself went awry and, and if there's anything that we can do to fix it? I, I had a couple of thoughts on this. So the first, I think, bringing political figures into the conversation, anyone who's controversial will exacerbate any existing tribal loyalties. Quoting Bill Barr in particular, I mean, Elder Callister maybe has more conservative political views. I don't know, but I, I kind of read into that. But choosing Bill Barr in particular, somebody who even people who are kind of never Trump Republicans are very, wary of like a lot of eyebrow raising for some of the things that he did while serving in office right you immediately trigger that part of our brains that is very tribal in nature and knee-jerk in reaction and i think um you know jonathan Haidt's book righteous mind kind of goes into that people have their moral intuitions and then behave with post hoc rationalization for their intuitions and so you get into a part of the brain and part of people's identity that identifies themselves the way that they are, their being with a particular tribe. So he's triggering that impulse right off the bat, right? So I think that's one part of, of what makes this conversation difficult. The other is it's taking like very controversial issues about things like abortion and same-sex marriage and uh, um, you know climate change, things that are very um, pressing problems that we're trying to wrestle with as a society and you can only devote so much time and space i think he has one paragraph that really i think was was the one people took exception to and so 
had he had a longer, like if he was able to write a book on the subject, you can add all of the nuance, you can add all of the explanations, you can add the caveats to your, to your conversation. So when he puts in quotes, love and compassion as a packaging for changing uh, norms about same-sex marriage, right? It's hard to take, say, everyone deserves love and compassion. Everyone deserves empathy. Everyone deserves support. No one deserves to be ousted from their family. And in fact, you know, the, the brethren and general authorities have been teaching against that very act. You can only put so much of that into, you know, five, five minutes, right? So part of it's a, a space constraint and attention constraint that people have with social media. Things move so quickly. There's a context problem. And, and, I, and I think then adding like colonial times in recent memory, like the last 10 years focus on the sins of colonial America has gotten a ton more attention as it probably should, right? We've gone from kind of a hyper almost idol worship version of American history. And now we're kind of swinging the other direction that, uh, for example, Thomas Jefferson has no redeeming qualities because of his relationship with uh, Hemings and with uh, his slave ownership, right? You, people are more complex than that. And it's hard to get into the nuances of something like that in a short op-ed. And so people will often focus on the omissions because they don't have they don't have space to add everything that they'd like to, and it goes back to editing. Um, and so people tend to focus on the exceptions, not including colonial breakdown, like separating the families who were enslaved African of enslaved Africans. Right, that is horrible behavior, inexcusable in a moral sense, and totally goes against the the idea of family as a fundamental unit. Right. And kind of pushes against the idea that uh, the colonists really understood that. Yes, they were absolute hypocrites on that behavior. But they also brought to the United States a legal and social framework that established families as the basic unit within our legal system that we still have. Right. So uh, part of it is an, in, an inability or, in, or not a uh, lack of a willingness to engage with those nuances because that tribal center's already turned on. There's a, there's a strong case to be made. You said something a minute ago that, that struck me and I remember listening to, and I can't remember who it was, so I can't cite it, but I was listening to an economist who, who basically said, if you were looking to destroy the black family, you couldn't have done better than what America's done in the last hundred years. Um, and that's not even getting into slavery and like stuff before that. That's just talking about the structure of welfare programs and the structure of mass incarceration and the structure of a lot of that stuff. The other thing that came to mind while you were talking is there's a, a silly experiment where they, they pour two glasses of orange juice and they label one of them orange juice and they label the other one definitely not poison. And shockingly, people don't drink the one that says definitely not poison. Like, I, I think to your point, I actually really like both of the quotes, like what Bill Barr said. I was like, wow, that's really thoughtful. I don't much care for Bill Barr, but what he said, like, okay, there's some stuff that I would change, but like, there's some good in that. The colonist one, I was like, eh. my first reaction to that one was kind of tribal and, and icky and like, why are we, this is, this is weird. But I think there's some good in that, but there's a, there's probably a way to, to quote somebody else or to talk about, um, talk about it in another way. I'm frustrated by this. Like we finally realized that maybe the founding fathers shouldn't be, um, canonized, right? Like maybe they aren't saints and that's okay. 
and that the mythology of America is important, but it can be a little bit more honest. And that's actually a better mythology. But now it's swinging from that to America is terrible. All of them were horrible. This country is terrible because of all of them. And like, that's all that's a, I don't think that's good for our mythology, but B and more importantly, it's also just not historically accurate. Right. And so having a really honest conversation about where we are and that I think would be really useful. Jeff, go ahead. Uh, I, I think if I return to my little hobby horse about accusation, you know, or in logic, we talk about the ad personam fallacy because someone said something, uh, whether, or, or worse, we've taken it further today because of their guilt by association, because you're associated with someone uh, therefore, we're not even going to talk about your view. We're not going to consider your view. We're going to uh, reject it because of not merely who you are, but who you're associated with. Uh, and that's happened with the Bill Barr uh, pushback here, which I need to say, I actually am a fan of Bill Barr. And uh, any of your listeners should also, he said some really important things on religious liberty. Had a great talk at Notre Dame that you can look up uh, and maybe we should just uh, put uh, uh, somebody else's name on it because a Democrat could have said that, maybe not today, but 15 years ago uh, they would have. Uh, anyway, uh, but then we can also say that about Elder Callister. I wonder if this had been somebody else with the exact same words, if this had gone over. Elder Callister, this isn't the first time he's Push, he's gotten some people riled up. Uh, and so I think some people, they may have gotten no further than his name before they decided uh, they were upset. And the tragedy I think about the, the colonial issue is both, both the hagiolatry of, oh my gosh, these, these people were saints and the, the, what's the opposite of hagiolatry, cacistology, you know, these are the worst, these people are the worst, misses the point that we, we really should be taking from our colonial past, which is these were people with tremendous fundamental disagreements. Yeah, they were hypocrites and bad people, but hey, uh, we're not any better people. Uh, if, if they weren't better than us, then we're not better than them either. That's a mistake we can make too. But how did they resolve? There were some, they had just as, you read their partisan press. If you get into the primary sources and you read the awful things to talk about tribalism, talk about lack of civility, uh, they, the names they called each other in their, their, you know, and what they were able to pull together and create. How did they do that? That is the question we should be asking. Uh, not, oh, look at these wonderful people. They, they, they weren't angels, but they did have some morals and some principles that could use, uh, that are still useful. I, I agree with that. I'm going to just throw in a word because this is a hobby horse of mine. I want to also guard against shifting from lazy idolatry of the founding fathers to lazy criticism of the founding fathers. Anytime I, I mention Benjamin Franklin, who's kind of a hero of mine, people are like, oh yeah, he did some good things, but he was, he was a dirty old man. Um, that's a, basically a complete fiction that's been made up in the last you know, 100 years. There's just no historical evidence to say that, except the fact that he had a child out of wedlock when he was young and then took care of that child for his whole life, even when he was married. He was very flirtatious 
Um, everybody talked about that all the time. And he was, and he used that in court in France in order to make political victories. Um, but when you actually look into it, most historians are like, yeah, if there was anything going on like that, we don't have any evidence of it. So it may have been, but we don't know. Um, and so in this, I, I think back to your point, what's really impressive about the founding fathers to me is that they did have problems. And as usual, they were able to articulate goals that still resonate today, even as they themselves did not live up to them. That doesn't mean that they weren't hypocrites. That does mean that the goals might've been worth striving for. Um, and I think that's a beautiful concept. And it, I, I wish that they, they had been better. I think it would have been better for everybody. Um, and, but how they were able to come together despite yeah. the hypocrisy, despite whatever personal failings they had, because uh, yeah, Benjamin Franklin get a bad, gets a bad rack, but Governor Morris uh, <laughs> probably was all the things. And yeah, he played <laughs> such, a, such an important role, you know, and, and we can learn from that. So I want to end on a note about um, some of the things that I heard um, on Twitter where people were feeling really, really hurt by. Um, and some of those included, okay, my life hasn't been perfect. Am I the wreckage that he's talking about? Um, the other one that I heard was, oh, love and compassion is demonic. If you love and, and are compassionate for gay people, then you're, um, that, that's Satan's plan. Um, I, I can't speak for him, but I feel pretty confident um, that he is rooting for anyone who has a less than ideal family situation. And by the way, I'm, I'm referring specifically to the people that I saw on Twitter who were saying that they were divorced or that they had been through um, really challenging times. Um, we said this at the beginning, but it's worth saying again, I don't think that he's talking about those people as wreckage. In fact, all the research does say that people are resilient and that they can still come through and that they should be cheered on. I, I am very willing to bet that Elder Collister is rooting for every single mother out there and doing everything that um, he can think of to support them and encourage them. Um, while at the same time trying to encourage our society to, frankly, and this is my own personal bias, I have a really hard time with guys that don't do what they need to do to be decent dads and to show up for, for their wives and their families. Like that's a really core value to me. I think it's really important. Um, I think that there are some stuff in here that feels political. If your first priority is um, left-leaning politics, then this is going to feel uncomfortable because he's saying that's actually not the most important thing. And at the same time, I've been in meetings where the general authorities, I, I've been in general conferences where they do the same thing on the right and they talk about immigration or they talk about other things, right? If your primary worship is at the altar of politics, this talk is gonna rub you wrong. Um, and if it's left, if it's right-wing politics, another talk is gonna rub you wrong. Like that's just, we don't, the God we worship is not in the Republican or Democrat parties and, or Democratic parties. And I don't think that that's um, hard to conceive of. I'm trying to think, I think there was one other one um, that, that I was gonna mention really quick. The arch defenders of the nuclear family. Somebody got on him because grandparents are important. And I was like, yeah, I would have edited, edited that one, but also I don't think he's saying, well, grandparents and aunts and uncles are really not what we're here for. Like, let's get rid of all the cousins. They can never visit anymore. I think that, again, that's a deliberate misunderstanding. That just seems silly. Um, there is a lot of evidence that extended family is really, really important. But I think what he's arguing for is a traditional family of a mom and a dad who love their kids and are trying their best and screwing up all the time, but still trying. And I think that is a cause that is worth talking about and defending and rallying to the defense of. Uh, last closing thoughts from either of you. Uh, I, I guess not. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just repeat again the 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 be you know uh, we we maybe I'd say it this way uh, cleanse cleanse our inner vessel first mm -hmm. 
as Jesus recommended. Uh, let's look inside. Let's see if, if, if I am inclined to just jump in and defend Elder Callister's honor. Am I doing that for my own ego because of the positions I'm invested in? Or am I doing that because I, I have a genuine love for God's truth and the spirit is urging me to do this? Or is it an ego thing? I've been caught in that trap. Sometimes I've, I've gotten a gentle rebuke from the spirit saying, what are your motives really here, Jeff? And, and I, it exposes us because God is going to defend his word. He's not going to defend me if I'm not with him, even if I think I'm doing the right thing. If I'm doing the right thing for the wrong reason, because I want to do some sick burn on Twitter, uh, there's no way uh, that, that that's right. On the other hand, if my first reaction when I read this is to feel attacked or accused, maybe I can be a little curious about that. Here's the therapist coming out again. Maybe I can be curious about that. And maybe I can go, well, why, why is this such a hot button for me? And once I get some insight, I, yeah, then I, can, I still might be able to push back on some things, but I can do it from a less reactive, more reflective place that's probably going to be constructive. More, more, it's going to be more constructive and more helpful to the conversation than just, again, going on the attack because I'm hurt. Uh, I'm going to even, go to even if there might be a good reason for that, but I'm going to be able to be more articulate about that once I, I, I get some more insight into why. I'm going to go to Sam in just a second, but I just really want to emphasize what a, what a perfect point to end on. If I'm jumping into the fray to defend the honor of my tribe, I don't think that's actually helping anything that Elder Collister is talking about. And I saw that, by the way, on both sides, but I was particularly miffed with the, the, the reactionary rights reaction, um, which I need to figure out and be more Christ-like about myself. But um, if it's about defending your tribe, you're not actually doing as much good. And uh, I, I told you all this beforehand, but I, I really hope that this podcast does some good at clarifying misunderstandings and doesn't feel like a counterpunch. That what we're actually doing today is actually trying to talk through, like there is some good here. Let's talk about that. Let's, let's, let's clarify things. Let's build bridges. And by the way, probably the best thing that I can do Today, if I really believe in Elder Collister's remarks, is get up from my podcast and go be an awesome dad. And I think that that is a profound and important, like that, that is the message of the gospel. And yeah, it may, it may have been abused by right-wing politicians about personal responsibility, but there is truth there that we could live up to that I think is really important. Sam, you get the last word. Sorry, I keep ranting here. <laughs> um, it took me a second to like really digest this because I my first exposure was like having read it kind of quickly and then seeing the reaction online and kind of giving my own knee jerk responses. And it probably came off a little more tribally than I had would have hoped. But <clears throat> one of the things that I took away from this is uh, just what you said, Ben is uh, the, the idea that you get up from podcasts or you, you take the time to be invested in your own family. I, I the, what is an arch defender of the family? right? The, the most experience that we have, the most interaction that we have is not going to be in a political sphere. It's not about policy. And it's not about uh, just thinking about hot button topics. Um, I have a friend um, here, here in Ithaca who taught a, a sociology course at BYU-Idaho um, online. And he, one of the questions that was, like, what's the biggest threat to the family? And, and most of the responses were kind of political hot button topics, right? 
And as he and I were talking about it, he was like, I'm concerned about just dads, like being good dads. You, and you can think about all of these issues that are listed in the beginning of this article and the beginning of this talk about the need for like economic issues, gun control, poverty, racism, crime, climate, like all of these issues, a lot of them could be solved if dads in particular were stepping up. And it is a, a bit of a trigger for me when I see relationships in which I'm not sure if they're the, like the husband or the dad really loves his wife or is really invested in his kids. That's a weird trigger for me. I, you know, I, I did my mission in Mongolia and one of the biggest issues there was alcoholism and particularly for dads. And it wasn't like it, just an economic thing. It was hab habitual abandonment of their responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And so to be an arch defender of the family, what it looks like on a day-to-day -day basis is the investment in your own family, setting a good example and being a support for other people who have their families. I think the core of the Chetty work and the Opportunity Insights team over at Harvard is, is that point. When you have a, an entire community where dads lean on each other, when moms lean on each other, when, when they have friends around them that share those burdens of parenthood with each other and learn how to do it better, when you have kids that play together and learn from each other, when you have uh, like an almost like a niece and nephew kind of relationship with your kids' friends, when you are a part of their upbringing, that is when you have the stability of the family really solidified, that even when you have failures that inevitably come in interpersonal relationships and people have their own issues that they bring into marriages and relationships and families, that those communities then become a source of strength. And I think from a very fundamental perspective, it's not about the politics and politics has a tendency to infect everything around it, but it really is about what am I doing with my own family, my immediate friends? Am I a shoulder to cry on? Am I an encouragement? Am I a source of joy for other people that they can come hang out with me for an hour to do a dinner and then go back to their family, a better parent or a better spouse? And that for me was the core of this, that the onus is on us as members of families, as parents, for me as a dad personally, to be the kind of parent, to be the kind of husband, to be the kind of friend and community member that's going to lead to this, um, these better outcomes for both my immediate friends and their kids. Maybe I could take Elder Callister's metaphor a little further. This is a liberty I, I'm a little hesitant to do with the general authority, but Sam, when you were talking, I thought about, you know, if you ever drive on the highway, you see those big orange barrels that'll sometimes be there. Sometimes in other places you'll see hay bales. Uh, why are those there? It's because when crashes do happen, that'll absorb the impact so that when an accident happens, the it won't be fatal. You still probably total your car. There'll still be damage, but it won't be deadly. And I, when I hear what you're saying, Sam, I translated into the to Elder Callister's metaphor. It's let's be better fences. Let's be fences that can absorb when some of those things happen. So people don't go over the edge. You can absorb and slow that down. Those barrels are there to put some space in the impact, to give that time to, to come to a, a halt a little less catastrophically. And what I hear you saying is we can be better fences. It's a brilliant encapsulation.
if people didn't already hate me, now I'm going to quote Jordan Peterson. Um, and he, uh, he's fond of saying, make your darn bed, but they, they sometimes forget the second part of that, which is get your life to the point where you're competent to run your life and then become somebody who's responsible enough that other people can depend on you in times of need. I think that's a really beautiful thought. I'll close with this, this thought that I've, I've had a number of times. Um, I, I work at college. Um, so I'm up here at BYU-Idaho and I, it's, it's perfect for me. I love it. And I'm, all of my remarks are my own. All the false doctrine is Ben Pacini's. It does not reflect on the university, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I had a student in my office recently who was concerned that he's not going to get many dates because he's not what people want, um, what, what, what young women are looking for. And I said, I think you should challenge the assumptions about what young women are looking for. And I, I really want to do a survey of some of the young women that I teach because I teach in education. So it's 95% women. And, you know, we're actually trying to do some more male recruiting and, and some stuff like that. Um, I looked him in the eye and I said, if you are somebody who is a humble disciple of Jesus Christ, who wants to be a great dad and a great husband and who can provide for a family, that that's a pretty phenomenal deal. So please understand that there are going to be dumb people who skip over you because they're looking at the package. They're looking at the, at the, at the outside package and the PR bundle. package. That's right. <laughs> but there are going to be a lot of people who are going to take a second look at who you are and what you have to offer. And that, that itself is probably better for you. Um, the question is how, how fiercely are you going to love your kids? How, how carefully, how hard are you going to work as an employee to try and provide for your kids? How early are you going to wake up to, to make pancakes on their on their birthday. I really believe that that has more to do with um, A, building strong families and B, getting the, the right kind of dates uh, than anything else you could do. Um, and on that note, I can hear my kids in the background starting breakfast. So I am going to wrap up. Thank you both for being here. Thanks to, to Jacob and Daniel. They, they had to run both because of kids. They told me in the chat. Um, this has been delightful. Radical Civility is written, edited, and produced by Benjamin Pacini. The views expressed are the participants alone and do not reflect the views of their employers, their families, their religions, their former pets owners, or even themselves in the future when they are smarter and wiser. Go put some good into the world for folks. Thanks. Talk soon.